When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, welcome to Profoundly Pointless. My name is Nick. Coming up in this episode, we're going to help you survive a disaster. And then after you've survived, you're probably going to be hungry, so we'll talk about the top five cereals of all time. One of my earliest memories is sitting in Marin Headlands watching San Francisco burn. If things go wrong, you want the people who are closest and nearest by to notice that you're missing and come looking for you which means you want them to know who you are. So you really want to get to know your neighbors. We've had large-scale extinction events. We've had um, epidemics. We've had plagues. We've had all sorts of things that have done a really good job of killing off large chunks of the planet, and we somehow find a way to get going again anyway. You have to choose one. Are you going into a haunted house or going on a haunted hayride? Oh, haunt? No. Ooh. Give me the square footage of the haunted house. I think the only vegetable that could rival the tomato for sheer coolness factor is probably the sweet potato. I want to thank you guys so much for joining us. If you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it. It really helps us out. It seems like between tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, volcanoes, earthquakes, plagues, we're hearing about some kind of a disaster at least once a week somewhere in the world. Our first guest will help you not die in one of those disasters. And if that's not interesting enough for you, she also regularly consults Hollywood on how to make disaster movies and other kinds of science fiction related shows be more realistic. This is Mika McKinnon. How did you get started in disaster research? One of my earliest memories is sitting in Marin Headlands watching San Francisco burn after the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake. And I was a tiny kid. Like, I have crayon drawings from our teachers having us try and process this in class. And I have this distinct memory of I never wanted to be that helpless again next time my city was in trouble. So it was it was very much an origin moment for me watching San Francisco burn. And then how how do you even like become a disaster researcher necessarily? What what's kind of the technical background or academic background for that? One of the neatest things about disasters is that it is the most truly interdisciplinary field I have ever even encountered, that there is something for everybody to do from every possible background. My particular perspective is I come from physics and geophysics. I was originally doing planetary science work, which involves a lot of math and chemistry and geology and engineering and robotics and all these other things. But along the way, I've worked with policy people, I've worked with communications people, I've worked with people coming up from an emergency response background, it has medical implications, it has sociology involved in it, it has statistics and epidemiology, and all of these other aspects that can all come together. 
even artists do a whole bunch of work in disaster response because having really clear infographics gets around language barriers. Is that just kind of how it has to be studied where you have to have this very broad knowledge of it? Or is it – I guess the the question would be, is there is there any kind of concern looking at it? Is there like, you know, your jack of all trades, master of none? Disaster work requires a whole lot of interdisciplinary work. It requires teamwork. No one person is going to be able to do things. And that's partly about the expertise and the experience. But that's also just the nature of doing really high-intensity work where any mistake can lead to fatalities that you want to have a team together who can have each other's backs, that you can't have the one lone rescuer going out because all that does is create a new victim when they burn out. Instead, you need to be collaborative and cooperative about it. On the upside, it turns out that despite what we see in a lot of Hollywood movies where like everything goes to pieces and one lone survival comes out of the rubble to go do things on their own, what we actually see in reality is that under extreme trauma, people come together, that you can have an earthquake that kills 70,000 people, and people will come together out of the wreckage to try and dig each other out and then have a tea party as they talk it over. That that sort of collaborativeness is almost inherent to having extreme events. How do you even really study it? You just have to wait for the disaster, or what do you do? What do you do? Oh, yeah, that is that is one of the more challenging aspects of disasters. Is thankfully the bigger they are, the less frequently they happen. It's an inverse frequency uh, magnitude curves. Um, so, like the really big earthquakes happen least frequently, or in in the ones that I studied most specifically, really really big landslides happen least frequently, which is great because we don't want to die in a landslide, uh, but is awkward because. You have to sit around waiting a long time, and then when it happens, you're really hoping that nobody died in it, and even if they did, you still have to study both the phenomena and the response, which can get very awkward, um, and I've definitely had moments where I, I was insufficiently aware of and sensitive to the human impact and was too focused on the mechanics and the physics, so that's been some hard lessons along the way. Um, we do a lot of modeling. We do a lot of looking at smaller events. Uh, it's really difficult to do lab work where you look at disasters because it turns out scale is a huge, huge, huge problem. That just scaling things up and down doesn't really work. Um, and that that human element, you can't ethically run experiments on people where you're like, in one scenario, you all die. It's not exactly an experiment we're going to run in real life. Are people receptive to it? You know, you, somebody like yourself arrives at a disaster zone. Are they receptive to the idea of like, look, we need to study this, we need to study this now? Or are they kind of push you away, so to speak? It very much depends on how you approach the situation. Um, and that's part of when I was saying, hey, we need sociologists in disaster work. We need ethicists in disaster work as well of how do you approach these these places. And that when you're dealing with somebody who's had the worst day of their entire life, who may have just lost everything, who may have just lost their family, you have to approach that with that sensitivity and delicacy and that people first attitude of you got to make sure there's no life safety issues that the people who are currently impacted are being taken care of before you deal with the science and the data collection. Um, but if you approach it right, most people understand, accept, and welcome the idea that, hey, maybe if we do some science, fewer people will die less time. Let, no, 
fewer people will die next time, um, which everybody likes to not die. It's, it's the favorite hobby of pretty much everyone on the planet is being alive. On a scale of 1 to 10, like how prepared are we in general for disasters? There is huge variety in how prepared people are. Um, ideally, we want everyone on the planet to be ready for between three days and a week of being on their own with what materials and supplies do they need to be able to just take care of themselves, to just hunker down where they live. That capacity changes wildly depending where you are. There's uh, a wealth aspect to it. If you are living paycheck to paycheck, you can't exactly stockpile a week of materials at a time. There is a cultural aspect to it. It's part of the Mormon religion to have emergency preparedness is one of the faith tenets. Um, it depends where you are in the world and what sort of disasters you have. If you're somewhere that's constantly getting barraged by major storms and flooding, You've got more preparedness for that because it's part of your regular pattern, but you also might not have much resilience because it's part of your regular pattern and you're constantly being disrupted and interrupted. So it's all over the place on that. On a terms of a response and a, an understanding and a science scale, it's also incredibly variable. We're working in a different situation now where because we've been pumping more and more energy into the atmospheric system, we've got bigger and more severe storms going on, um, and the storms are being, building up more rapidly, which means every hurricane season is getting longer and more intense and more deadly. At the same time, we're seeing that with our fire seasons and our flooding seasons, and floods and fires are the most common disasters that impact everybody everywhere, and we're now dealing with fire seasons that aren't ending. So we're in unknown territory in those regards where we just don't know what's going on, well, we know what's going on. Climate change is going on, and it's really, really inconvenient. And it'd be really nice if we could just get a handle on that and rain down the disasters again, make things less bad. Um, but we don't, we don't have a situation where we understand how exactly it's going to impact all the human features of this because we haven't been in this situation before. What's kind of the bigger threat? Is it the kind of immediate thing that grabs people's minds, like an earthquake or typhoons or something, volcano? Or is it the idea of like something to slow burn, like climate change? Both are terrible. I mean, it's so humans are really terrible about thinking of high intensity, low frequency events. Everybody is going to win the lottery, convinced of this. Nobody is going to be around for the next big earthquake, equally convinced of this, um, that we just don't really conceptualize it very well. Um, we're also not really good with long time scales. If something isn't happening today and tomorrow, then it's never going to happen, which is just inconvenient in terms of, well, reality doesn't work that way, but that's how we perceive it. Um, we also have problems with, uh, well, it just happened, so it's going to happen again tomorrow, where most disasters don't have that sort of immediate return curve. Um or it happened last year, so it's never going to happen again, which is also not what happened. So all of these things, like, humans are really, really bad about thinking about. Um, and it takes a lot of effort and a lot of will to kind of overcome our natural inclination to be like, ah, it'll be fine, don't worry about it, um, and to move on from that. Yeah, I live now in Seattle, which, what, between the Cascadia subduction zone and Mount Rainier and all that kind of stuff apparently is one of the 
more dangerous places, I understand. But I'm pretty convinced that it's never going to happen to me. So I'm up also in the Pacific Northwest. I'm in Vancouver. Uh, so I'm part of your same earthquake zone. And here's the thing. Everywhere has disasters. And it's all a question of what disasters are you comfortable with. I grew up on the West Coast. I am familiar with earthquakes. I know my drop cover hold on. I do those drills so often if a large truck goes past, you can look around and find me under the nearest table. I am good with that. Uh, I understand fires. That's just part of living in the West. I can understand don't turn your back on the ocean. Big old rogue waves can come and get you. I understand all those things because I grew up with them and I'm comfortable with them. But then I fly out east and I'm under a blizzard warning and there's this countdown to doom and everybody's clearing off the roads. And I'm very quietly trying not to freak out because I don't I don't understand that type of disaster. I don't have experience with it. I haven't gone through it before. It's not part of what I grew up doing my drills on, even though it's totally normal to people who live under that constantly. So everywhere has disasters. It's just a question of which ones are you comfortable for and how are you prepared? When you talk about disasters, what kind of di- what what are we talking about necessarily? Like, what different events are you guys studying? Uh, so, I personally tend to work with uh, the fluid dynamics of disasters. So, everything that behaves like a fluid—that be landslides and tsunamis and um, uh, lahars. So, that's like the superheated volcanic landslides or pyroclastic flows, which is superheated, toxic, incredibly fast. L- Volcanic landslides with shards of glass uh, are the ones I work with most. Um, but I also do policy work uh, and communications work with all of the, they're not really natural disasters, but uh, disasters created by uh, planets and physics and storms as opposed to ones caused by biology and uh, small microbes. So I don't tend to deal with the medical aspect, but I deal with like landslides and earthquakes and um, eruptions and severe storms and fires and floods and droughts and climate change and even asteroid impacts, all of that. But I don't really deal with plagues. Other people do, just not me. So happy. That's just such a happy day. <laughs> you know? Well, you know, it's, I mean, and this again, it gets down to that same interrelatedness. If we have a large enough disaster, a catastrophic scale disaster, then you start doing things like breaking down, um, the basic hygiene and sewage systems of location. And then you're going to go from your earthquake recovery straight up into, Hey, we all have like dysentery. So there's very much interrelated aspects where it's not just one and that you can have a technological disaster. We have our communications grids go down. Well, if our communications grids go down, then we can end up with people panicking and doing silly things, or we can have poor coordination and then create catastrophic events and then have it start snowballing and cascading. And those are some of the hardest things to work with because if you've got just one isolated event, you probably have plans for one isolated event. But real life is really that simple and you end up with these interconnected disasters. So you end up with things like that Japanese earthquake that triggered the tsunami that drained the nuclear plant, which set off a meltdown all kind of in sequence at the same time with no breathing room in between. I mean, I mean, that seems like a big concern. Like, how do we know what we don't know, right? Like, how do we find oh. out what the unintended consequence that ends up being the real problem, like you were just talking about? <laughs> so this is where we start getting very meditative. We get into the, like, the Tao, that which I do not know, that which I know which I do not know. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
I mean, in some ways you can do uncertainty modeling and go, okay, so if I screw up and I'm wrong, how bad can it get? And we do things like we include um, factors of safety. So out in the Pacific Northwest, we've got a whole bunch of really, really steep mountains, most of which were formed by volcanoes. So it was lava kind of piling on top of each other, and it's really loosely connected. And then we had a bunch of glaciers come by and chop the toes off everything the last ice age 15,000 years ago. And then it all retreated. So now we've got a bunch of over-steepened, weakly put-together mountains with the toes chopped off that fall down really easily. And then we have a lot of rain. So landslides are a thing. We've got a lot of landslides in the Pacific Northwest. But we have to go through these mountains. So when we're trying to calculate out whether or not a slope is going to fail, whether or not a landslide is going to happen, one of the things we do is calculate the factor of safety. Where one is that critical, perfectly balanced number where a sneeze will set up falling down. We do not build to a factor of safety of one. We put a margin of error on that and go, okay, cool, this slope should stay put. Even if we have a couple semis go past, a couple of earthquakes, a whole lot of rain, what's the worst case we can think of? Right, it should still stay stay put. um, And we're going to keep kind of mitigating that hazard as long as we're getting good returns on how much money we're spending to fix it. But at the same time, we can't fix it all the way because that would involve bulldozing the Rocky Mountains into a flat field. Um, So you have to kind of find your balance point of here's my risk. Here's what I think could happen. Here's how much money I can spend on it. Here's how much that money is decreasing that risk. Here's the things we can do in terms of policy. Let's not build a hospital right at the bottom of the slope. Maybe we should put some warehouses there that are empty half the time, reduce like the element of humans exposed to that that hazard. Cool. We're all right. A landslide might still happen, but if it does, it won't be as devastating as it could be. Who's who's generally harder to convince, right, that this is going to be to, to prepare necessarily? The general public or elected officials? Like who seems to be – who do you have to push harder on? Oh, so here's a dirty little secret. Elected officials do whatever the public wants them to do. Um, so I, I work with everybody at all scales. Um, and I've worked from local up through international and federal work. And the trick is that nobody wants to die and nobody wants anyone else to die on their watch. But they also don't want to waste resources and money and time. And everybody thinks they should prepare for disasters more, which they should. Um but are busy, broke, and lazy. Uh, So the real pathway isn't convincing people they should prepare, but finding a gateway on how to start preparing. And the one I like to talk about is parties. So let's say something goes terribly, catastrophically wrong. Who are the first responders on scene? This random people, right? Yeah, it's not going to be the police, it's not going to be the firefighters, it's not going to be the paramedics. It's going to be whoever is physically closest to the scene, which if you're at home, is your neighbors. So, if things go wrong, you want the people who are closest and nearest by to notice that you're missing and come looking for you. Which means you want them to know who you are. So you really want to get to know your neighbors. The more you get to know your neighbors, the more you're building up community resilience. And this has direct impacts on life safety. Oh, my goodness, there's an earthquake. We should go run into the rubble and dig out our friend who didn't come out. Um, Oh, their building is on fire. 
we should pound on the door and tell them to get out because they might not notice yet. Any of those things, you want to get that immediate life safety. But it also has an impact on the recovery of the entire community. The, the greater your resiliency ahead of time is kind of like putting coins of goodwill into a piggy bank. And when things go wrong, you can smash it open and spend that goodwill on the recovery. That there's more slack given to, hey, we don't all have all our stock in place yet, but we're going to reopen this little tiny neighborhood market right away. Now we can start getting supplies in and out. Now we can start getting normalcy back. Now we can start getting paychecks going again. So the sooner you get those things happening, the better. And you get more of that with community resilience. That's it. There you go. There's your first step of emergency responses. Next time you're having a movie night, knock on your neighbor's door and say, hey, come on over. Go to community events and get to know those people who are physically closest to you. By that one little behavior tweak, you're actually building up your preparedness and making it so you're more likely to survive a disaster. In terms of like issuing a disaster preparedness, is there a strategy to that or how does it work? We've had the coolest little bit of research into this. So it turns out, ideally, you want to have a woman, not a man, issue your evacuation orders. Because if you have a man do it, you end up in these situations of, I'm tougher than you. I don't need to listen. Uh, we also found out that if you have single mothers, they're more likely to listen to women than to men. The next chunk is you want to have it somebody who is visibly older because, oh, I've survived worse. That young whippersnapper doesn't know what they're talking about. So ideally, evacuation orders want to be issued by your most gray-haired, wrinkled little old lady up there. Have we even really seen a big one? Like an 8, 9, 10 on a scale of 1 to 10. Have we even really dealt with that? Yes. I mean, so most disaster scales actually are designed to cap out before they hit 10. Uh, so something like an earthquake, you can't have a magnitude 10 earthquake. Physically, it doesn't make sense. It'd be like splitting the planet in half. I don't even know. But we've had magnitude 9 earthquakes. We've had magnitude 9 earthquakes in the Pacific Northwest. We had a, a magnitude 9.5 in South America. It was the largest earthquake ever recorded. And there are people alive today who lived through it, like not even ancient senior citizens that are wobbling around at age 120. No, no, they're like, it was 1970s, I think. I'd have to check the date on that. Um, but we've had several magnitude 9 earthquakes for sure within our lifetime and several within the last couple of years. We've had uh, these one-in-a-hundred-year storm events that turn out to not actually be one-in-a-hundred years once you shift what the basic climate model is looking like. Now they're a lot more frequent. So we've had the most intense, fastest-building hurricane, uh, six hurricanes in four weeks within the last couple of decades. We had these extreme events, and we've survived them, uh, not always gracefully, but we kind of keep going. We've had collapse of civilization before, if you want to look on a larger scale, and people have picked up their pieces and gone on. We've had large-scale extinction events. We've had um, epidemics, we've had plagues, we've had all sorts of things that have done a really good job of killing off large chunks of the planet, and we somehow find a way to get going again anyway. Is that a concern, though, that I work in the news business where you're supposed to be informed, and I don't remember any of them? <laughs> so this is another beautiful quirk of human psychology. Um, we're really good at buffering bad events. I am stepping a little bit outside my lane in that I really don't like dealing with the fragile, squishy aspect of biology. And when we start getting into the human psychology events, I need to know a bit from my work, but it's absolutely not my expertise. 
But something that we really do see quite often is when somebody experiences something horrible and traumatic, part of the response is that your brain will shelter you from it by just fuzzing it out. There's a whole, there's entire fields of study in this. PTSD is is focused in part on how do we deal with having a memory blocks that we can't even process and deal with it because our brain's like, nope, this is too much. We are blocking that one out. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a lot of horrible things that happen all the time. Um, you're, you probably remember the ones that impacted you directly. And thankfully we have not had a Cascadia zone earthquake since January 26, 1700. Um, so we're, we're lucky on that one, but these events happen all the time. You're you're also involved with I'm going to butcher this SETI. That's how you say this, right? Uh, the SETI Institute, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So SETI is a search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, so that's looking for signs of life in other parts of the the universe. Now, this is a little bit funny to say that I'm involved with them because how I'm involved with them is by looking at landslides on asteroids. Um, and landslides on moons. So doing the same disaster work that I do here on Earth, but doing it in space. Um, it sounds reason, really cool, though. <laughs> yeah, it is. It really is. Uh, and the reason that we're doing it is that we've been sending more and more little robots going off and exploring comets and asteroids. And every now and then something happens. Like the European Space Agency sent the Rosetta mission to Comet 67P, and it dropped the little fillet lander onto the comet. And the lander went bounce, bounce bounced upside down on his back, legs in the air next to a cliff and died. And every scientist and engineer went, no. And so now we're going, what do we need to do to make sure that never, ever happens again? So right now, Japanese Space Agency has the um, Hibiyasha 2 mission is in orbit around the asteroid Ryugu, and it keeps dipping down to the surface and collecting rock samples from the asteroid. And the American Space Agency, NASA, with combination of a little bit of help from the Canadian Space Agency, CISA, um, are in orbit around, uh, their Cyrus-Rex mission is in orbit around uh, the asteroid Bennu. And its planning is getting ready to go down and start taking some asteroid sample returns. Um, but they've had a small problem in discovering their asteroid is, like, completely covered in giant boulders. Um, and we're a little bit concerned the asteroid will, or the robot will go down to take an asteroid sample and a rock will just kind of roll on top of it. Um, so the work I'm doing is trying to create these hazard tools we use here on Earth. Can we use them for space missions? Can we use them for asteroid and comet missions? Can we use them for small moons? Can we use them places that aren't Earth to go, all right, we've learned how to do hazard assessments here. Let's Let's use those techniques in space and not crunch our poor little robots before they have a chance to do their science. I feel so bad for the robots now. <laughs> oh, they're, they're such hardworking robots, and I'm so, so pleased we are using them. And it's actually, it's something I wish we did more of here on Earth. I understand robots are very, very expensive, um, and in a lot of ways, they are less capable than humans. All of the science done by, like, the Mars rovers over the last decade could have been done by a human team inside a week um but they're they're really great for going places that us fragile squishy little humans can't and i mean here on earth we've had we've had way too many fatalities of like volcanologists getting killed by the volcanoes that they're studying even when a volcano seems like it's quiet even when it's fairly calm it can have a little hiccup and 
have toxic gas come out. It can uh, fling ch- tiny chunks of, of lava through the air that cool as they go through the air, creating a lava, a hurled hot rock that could very easily kill you if it smacks you. It's killed an entire field trip of geoscientists. You mentioned science fiction. Now, you've worked with several TV shows to kind of make sure they get things right. How accurate are they generally? So I, I, that's a common way of interpreting how I do science consulting in the movies and in TV. I wouldn't say my job is accuracy or getting it right. My job is how can you use science to make a more plausible and interesting story? So it's not about getting it right. It's about getting something that makes sense. Um, an example of that would be I worked on Stargate where we have faster than light travel. Well, in reality, we will never have faster than light travel if the rules of physics as we understand them are true, because it turns out just from how we think about the universe and how the physics all works together, you can have a cause and effect. If this happens, then something else happens, which clearly exists in our universe. You can have um, relativity, which is uh, the Doppler effect of redshift, blue shift of stars coming away from or towards us, or the sound of a siren going from uh, low pitch to high pitch as it goes past you, all of those things that we see and observe and hear in our reality are definitely true. Or you can have faster than light travel. And you can only get two out of those three, otherwise the pieces start falling apart. So the fact that there's faster than light travel in Stargate, well, that's inherently inaccurate. But there's no relativity in Stargate. We just remove the Doppler effect, redshift and blue shift, and all of those things. It's really subtle. It's very background. Uh, but it makes that we can have an internally consistent universe that follows a particular set of rules. Um, or things like we had, uh, I worked on a romantic comedy called No Tomorrow. It was a romantic comedy about the end of the world where there's a giant asteroid coming to kill us all. And the asteroid in that movie is actually a combination of several real-life asteroids. Um, it's actually a combination of the asteroid 16 Psyche, which is a very uh, iron-rich asteroid in orbit vaguely near Jupiter. We're sending a mission there in the 2020s. Um, and the orbital profile of an, uh, near an Earth orbit crossing asteroid. So one that when we first started observing it, we thought would actually impact the Earth, called Apophis, and blended those together to create a fictional asteroid. So it's not accurate at all. It's it's an asteroid that doesn't exist. But the properties of it and how it behaves and how we do orbital deflections and how would we observe it are all things that are true to life. Which one of those productions did you have the most fun working on? Oh, all of them. I always have fun. It's like this amazing cotton candy of a job where I do all of this very serious, very grim work in disasters. It has huge impact, but can also understandably get grim. I mean, you're you're working with death. You're working with the worst possible scenario. So to be able to switch tactics and go, okay, I'm going to work where somewhere where it's just for fun that nobody actually dies, that we can go completely full-blown what's the worst that could happen with our visual effects and talk about having a tsunami hit the port of Los Angeles and pick up half a million cargo containers and chuck them across the L.A. basin at 55 miles an hour and do that as a movie instead of real life is really fun. And I mean, it's also got this ability that 
a lot more people watch movies and TV than show up in the geology classes that I teach. That if I do a good job, I'm not necessarily teaching facts, but it is a subversive education in the process of science and the concept of using data to make decisions of the practice of science that there are people going out there and studying things. And all of this can kind of just get slipped in in the world building of a show. You talked about kind of the grim nature of what you study. Have you ever had an experience that kind of really stands out to you? Yes, many. uh, And a large chunk of that also comes down to when working with people on their very, very worst day, there's also a lot of privacy issues that it's not my story just because it impacts me. Um, So having to find ways of processing that while still respecting privacy is is challenging. Um, Definitely, I've come up with a lot of different techniques over time. And every now and then I'll do something like, hey, friends, I just need everybody to send me kitten pictures for a day. I'm having a rough go of it. And I just need a steady stream of pleasant. Just just give me something relaxed. Um, When we're in a time period where a lot of disasters are happening one after another after another, I will switch over to reading entirely cozy witch mysteries where I'm just like, I want my all of my entertainment to be the most fluffy cotton candy, wonderful little cozy things I can find that will wrap me up in pink magic. And there we go. So finding balance can be can be quite tough. Are you ready for the hard questions? (laughs) Absolutely. If you had to, if you if you were had you had to put a bet down, which one gets us? What disaster gets us? Ends the human race? Uh, killing off the entire human race simultaneously is really, really, really challenging. This is actually a very common question um, for people writing apocalypse movies. Uh, but you don't need to entirely kill off the human race in order to lose society as we know it. In terms of gambling, I'd say right now we're doing a pretty fine job of trying to kill ourselves off with climate change. Once upon a time, long, long ago, there was no oxygen in our atmosphere. And there were these little creatures called stromatolites, blue-green algae, cyanobacteria, that were growing in these shallow, warm oceans. And they breathed in the atmosphere and they breathed out oxygen. And they kept doing this. And they breathed out so much oxygen, they oxygenated the oceans. And that oxygen in the oceans reacted with the iron in the oceans. The iron precipitated out. It made banded iron formations, these gorgeous striped red and black rocks. Those rocks only exist from that period of time, never again. They're now an extinct rock. Um, And these little stromatolites kept going, and they kept growing, and they kept breathing. And they breathed out so much oxygen, they oxygenated the entire atmosphere. And we got an oxygenated atmosphere from our perspective We call this the great oxygenation event, and it led to the Cambrian explosion of life. It led eventually to us, to air we can breathe. But for stromatolites, the alternate name is the great oxygenation catastrophe, because they breathed out so much oxygen, they shifted the atmospheric composition of the planet into something they could no longer breathe, and they killed themselves off. And small handfuls of stromatolites adapted and survived. There's a tiny little collection of them still alive in... um, Shark Bay, Australia, far west coast. But most of them died off, and now they're just fossilized rocks. They're about knee-tall, look kind of vaguely like rock mushrooms. Um, And you can go off and you can find them. And if you do, give them a pet. Thank them for their service because they're the reason we have an oxygen atmosphere we can breathe. That was the last most dramatic change in climate. And we are currently pushing for another one. And personally, my goal for humans is I would like us to out-strategize algae. 
I would like to be smarter than a stromatolite. I, I couldn't even... How do you even deal with that, the idea that we're doing this and we could... Doesn't that drive you crazy? How does a scientist not just tear their hair out? I have a big problem with running uncontrolled, unplanned experiments on anywhere I like to live. That's just, I mean, that's bad science practice. And it's also just, I I like to live. Um, But things that give me hope are that it is never too late to make things less bad. Sure, we can't go back to what it was before all of this, but we, we can make things less bad. The next chunk is I am seeing a lot more people care and a lot more people engaged than ever before. This is turning into something where people are noticing impact inside their lifetimes and they're not liking it and they want better. But I'm also just, I'm ready to move on to conversations about, hey, we need to do big policy sales scale things. We can't just allow anybody who has money to do anything they want it turns out money can buy you a lot of things, but it can't buy you a better planet. Earth is easy mode. If you can't keep Earth habitable, then you're really not going to survive on any other planet. So, dear space billionaires, please deal with the problems here. Disaster movie that you look at and think of, ooh, that that's about what could happen and that's about what that would look like. <laughs> like the most realistic possibility. Oh, so I, I don't tend to think about them in realistic because honestly, I hope that uh, the disaster movies have great enough impact that we change how we react. Um, but given that we're both in the Pacific Northwest, I have a huge fondness for the movie San Andreas uh, because they stole our earthquake. That's a Pacific Northwest earthquake. They relocated into California because we have different styles of earthquake. And the entire movie is a story of a, a brunette girl who runs around um, saving lives and winning hearts through her knowledge of disasters. So for me, it's very much like, oh, that's my movie. Um, And like The Rock does some things and all of that. But no, no, no. It's really the story of of disaster preparedness. The entire opening sequence of that movie is a great big long story and drop cover hold on. If you try and run in panic during an earthquake, you're just going to get yourself killed. How about the worst one? The one that you look at and like, oh my gosh, none of this could ever happen. (laughs) Oh, I never take that tactic in looking at my movies because I will always find a way to justify and I will always find a way to pull out something interesting. Um, And I take that perspective because it's so much easier to destroy than it is to create. Um, But things I have a really hard time coming up with justifications for are anytime I need to deal with speed of cold. Um, So an example of this that most people have at least heard of is in Day After Tomorrow, there's this scene where the storm comes overhead and then the cold chases people down hallways. Um, But I will admit we also had an episode of Stargate Atlantis where we had uh, lasers of cold, cold lightning that came chasing and killing people. Um, And the, the reason why that's so hard to justify is that heat transfers um but cold doesn't cold is the absence of heat uh so cold is never going to chase you anywhere you can have heat that that follows long paths you can have lightning that follows long paths but it's really hard to do that in inverse does that mean like Iceman couldn't exist he's my, one of my favorite <laughs> well, characters are you telling me Iceman can't be a real person as I said, I can justify it. It's just the most difficult. And generally, I require somebody buy me a drink before I start. Um, it, it's hard to come up with good physics for it. What, what are you working on now? What's kind of what's coming up? What's next? 
uh, for the very, very near future, it's going down to Dragon Con in Atlanta, where I'll be doing a whole bunch of, of sci-fi movie things, and then there'll be another convention in Portland, Oricon, in November, doing convention work. Um, right now, we're wrapping up the summer and heading into the autumn, which means that hopefully, maybe wrapping up fire season, which was not that horrendous yet this year, um, but that does mean moving into hurricane season. Um as always, working on all sorts of shows and and movies that I don't get to talk about until they've aired, which is always a little frustrating. Keep on going on it. I do a lot of traveling around trying to help people figure out how to not die. It's a good job. It's a good. It's a good LinkedIn bio, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't need to make things good. I just need to make them less bad. Let's all live. Um, it is. It definitely keeps my work in perspective. That. If I do a good job, fewer people die. I want to thank Mika so much for joining us. If you want to connect with her, we have linked to her on our social media accounts. We're profoundly pointless on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. She's got a really cool Twitter account. Like, if you're interested in the kinds of things that she talked about, if you want to learn more about planetary geology and the geology here on Earth and how all of these different disasters are really affecting the world around us, her Twitter is fascinating, and there's some really cool polls that you can you can participate in those as well. We also have links to her social media accounts and to her website on the RSS feed that's in this podcast. Okay, so now let's go ahead and give John Shaw a call, and he says he only has a certain amount of time because all of Detroit is collapsing again. Good evening, Sir Nicholas. If you were going to get killed in a natural disaster... Let's say tornado, flood, hurricane, earthquake, volcano, or a plague. How would you like to die? That's a tough one. One that I've thought about. I think everyone's thought about it before. If I had to choose one on the spot, though, I'd probably say a volcano. Why would you go volcano? That's me presuming that like I'm, I'm close enough to the summit that I can just sit there on the ground and just die within seconds of the lava just rushing over me. Because everything else, right? I mean, earthquake, flooding, tornado, all those things uh, take time, right? Unless you get killed with debris or something. But I just would think a volcano would be the the simplest way to, to go out, I think. See, I think tornado would be the easiest way to go because it's going to pick you up or it's going to drop something on you and you're going to be killed almost instantly, Right. He's going to slam you into something. That's going to kill you. He's going to drop a house on you. That's going to be pretty quick. Like a volcano, I mean, that's going to be, you're going to feel that heat. You're going to burn to death. That's got to be one of the worst ways to go. I I mean, once again, I was was only looking at it from, you know, you know, the volcano explodes and I'll just dive right into the lava. You'll go into shock and you'll die probably. Which if you're going to dive into lava, are you going to go head first or you going to go feet first? Oh, I'm going head first for sure. Yeah, that's the way to do it. <laughs> and it better be like uh, a deep enough lava pool because you know your immediate reaction is going to want to like try to get out. And then by then, you know, it's not worth it. You might as well just stay all the way in the lava. What if you went, though, and dove into the lava? It turned out to only be like an inch thick. You dive in. It just hits your hands. You land on your back, and then you have to wait for it to just slowly come over you. Oh, no, then, I mean, if that's the case, then I'm going something like what you just mentioned, like 
a tornado dropping, you know, dropping a car on top of me or something. Why? I guess what I'm getting at is I think most people agree is I whatever it is, I want it to be fast and minimal pain. I, I, and I don't really want to see it coming, I guess. Which one would be your worst way to die? Probably flooding, presuming yeah. that, you know, you're going to drown, obviously. I, I don't really don't really have any intent or, or, or want to ever experience anything like that. But yet, if you had a superpower, you'd want to be able to breathe underwater, which puts you at the highest rate of drowning. But if I have the superpower, I don't have to worry about drowning, because obviously I can breathe underwater. Unless it goes away, and then you're stuck underwater forever. Well, only you would wish that upon me. No, I'm saying, like, what if you're fighting against somebody whose power is to negate your powers, and then you're underwater, and you're going to drown to death? I mean, if we're getting that detail, then I wouldn't go into the water. Uh, well, you, you don't know, knowing know that that's their superpower. Yeah, but you don't know. They could just—they're your arch nemesis. They're just going to show up. I mean, flying—you would at least fall away from them, and you could get out of the range of their powers effectively, and you could start to fly again. Yeah, I can tell you're still a little emotional about this. Flying, flying is a good one. It's probably better, to be honest. Uh, here's my other question: If you're doing something, like say you're driving a car or you're at the mall. And you see somebody that has the same thing as you, like the same car or the same shoes or the same shirt. Do you try to get their attention or do you ignore them? Oh, man. <laughs> so I, I don't try to get their attention. And, but if I'm in a parking lot and there's a, a similar you know vehicle like mine, a lot of times I'm that douchebag that will pull up next to them and park next to them. Even <laughs> if they're like away from other cars. Do you try to acknowledge it? Are you going to try to like, hey, what are you going to say? Like if they look at you, what are you going to say? Oh, I mean, uh, a nice car. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I do it without hoping I never actually have to talk to the person. But I do it thinking like, oh, well, this is, you know, this is cool. At least I won't forget where my car is because there will be, you know, at least two of them in the parking lot together. But you could get confused as to which one is yours. That's an equal amount of big problem. <laughs> which I, I'm sure, I'm sure, like you, uh, I've done that at least a half dozen times where I've walked up to the wrong car and you know successfully opened the door twice and realized, oh shit, that's not my car. I've never had that happen to me or heard of that happening to anyone. Oh well. I think you need to get out a little more then. Now, there's nothing like breaking into a car accidentally. <laughs> Next thing you know, you're in jail. Um, do you, are, you ready, are you ready for, uh, are you ready for your segment? Uh, yes. But, um, I, I, I had, I had a request, uh, to Are you do, clicking a pen? I am clicking a pen. Stop clicking a pen. It? Yeah. Damn. It's like, it's at least a good three feet away from the phone. Yeah, but I mean, it was initially hard to hear it over your mouth breathing, but then once that got, once you stopped, I could hear you clicking the pen. <sighs> Listen, I, I can't, I can't solve the mouth breathing. My daughter's sick. I think my wife's getting sick. I feel like I'm getting sick. Well, what do you, what do you want from me here? To stop clicking the pen and don't breathe into the phone. <laughs> simple, simple request. Easy, for... two relatively easy things to do. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yes. So let's uh, let's let's get going here with uh, 
with me asking you things that you only have to give the answers to. Um, but first, I have to do the intro music, so hold on one second. God, that's... For people who've never heard that and were wondering what is going on, that's John shaking his face fat back and forth, which he thinks should be the intro music for this segment. And it's just thoroughly disgusting. It's I mean, so- I, I actually think, like I've said, uh, to those of you who might just be joining uh, or listening, I think it's more of my mouth and my lips rather than my neck fat. But... Uh, together, it's a very nice ensemble of sounds, I was told. It's it's thoroughly gross. <laughs> All right. Uh, the first one here, uh, which uh, was posted on our social media, uh, on Twitter, profoundly pointless. Do you think a tomato is a fruit or a veggie? I know it's a, I know it's a fruit, but I think of it as a vegetable. Like, you'll never change okay. my mind. I envision it as a vegetable. I I also believe it or not know it's a fruit, but I will stupidly defend it to anyone to this day, non scientifically, that it's a vegetable. Yeah, that's 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 the way I feel. I tried doing some searching as to when a tomato was labeled as a vegetable. I couldn't find like any any hard facts or any like stories about a person, right, or, or a reason why it's known as a vegetable. Probably because no one gives a shit. <laughs> it's just something that was started hundreds of years ago and the poor thing's been misidentified for most of its life, kind of like me. I'm sure that the person who was researching that got about halfway into it, realized no one cared, and gave up. <laughs> I <laughs> I guarantee you somewhere along the line there has been grants in, in, in college, I don't know, studies or, or whatever professional studies done as to how a tomato feels about its being declared something that it's technically not. It's probably pretty – well, a fruit is cooler than a vegetable. So I'm sure the the tomato is probably the coolest vegetable because it gets to <laughs> hang out with like the cooler kids. <laughs> Do you think like broccoli and cauliflower like looking at it like you son of a bitch? Oh, they're 100% jealous. I think the only vegetable that could rival the tomato for sheer coolness factor is probably the sweet potato. Sweet potatoes are damn good. I can't even. I, I can't even argue with you on that. How are you doing it? You doing it mashed, or you cutting it up into like circles? Uh just baking it whole, and then eating it with a slit down the middle with some butter. You go with skin on or skin off? Oh, skin on, one hundred percent. Okay, all right, legit. Wait, do you eat the skin? <laughs> uh sometimes I will. It depends if I'm. If I'm putting like some seasoning on the skin, uh, feeling fancy, or if it's just, you know, if I just bake it and then it just comes out obviously with nothing on the skin except for its natural flavor, I might, I may or may not at that point. Okay, wow. Anyways, who would have ever thought sweet potatoes uh, would take up a minute of our our, uh, show here? Um, All right, uh, you have to choose one. Are you going into a haunted house or going on a haunted hayride? Oh, haunt? No. Ooh. How long's the hayride? I mean, I've only been on two. We'll say between at least 30 minutes, but no more than an hour. Give me the square footage of the haunted house. Oh, my God. Uh, we'll say no more than 3,000, but less than 5,000. 
Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's a good size. It's a good size haunted house. Well, if it's no more than three thousand, that means it can't be above three thousand. So it would also be less than five thousand. Oh wait, maybe maybe I messed it up. It's uh, at least three thousand, but no more than five thousand. All right, so that's not a crazy. I would go with that size. Is it basement? Does it have a basement? Oh yeah, there's a basement and mm. there's an attic section too that you have to see that you know you can pop into. I was gonna go easily the haunted house. The basement though makes it a little bit more scary. The attic also makes it a little bit more. I, Four thousand feet or under, I'm going haunted house. Four thousand feet or over, I'd take the hayride. You're, you're so weird. Have you you've been to a haunted house before? I, I assume. No, I'm a huge chicken shit. I don't do anything like that. All right. Well. One of our mutual friends, Matt Papasik, and I did uh, Halloween Horror Nights, which is a big thing that Universal Orlando does. Uh, they have haunted houses and whatnot. Uh, and you really can't contribute anything to this conversation, so it's probably pretty boring. But yeah. I, I get to the point where I will, I will physically assault somebody trying to scare me if I feel that they're taking their job too seriously. You went there to be scared. Right, but... I mean, I, I want to be spooked, absolutely, 100%. But don't touch me. And don't, like, I can't stand, uh, especially at certain places, especially this rinky-dinky uh, haunted anythings, where, like, you get the one asshole or, or woman who just follows you, and they're so into their character, all they do is, like, make it their sole mission just to bu- bug the hell out of you. Like, so, it makes me want to pick up, like, a knife and just stab them in the throat. So basically what you're really upset about is the idea that you pay for something, go to that place to be scared, and then get mad because somebody is trying to scare you. I don't know if that's if that's technically it. It's just more like the boundary thing. Like, there's a 100 people here, you know, just because, like, I didn't, you know, scream and cry because you, you know, didn't scare me the way you thought you were. Like, you don't have to make it a point to get your, your jollies off by trying to, you know, spend the rest of your time scaring me. Well, see, now I can tell you that without knowing anything about haunted houses, after this incident, that person probably feels that they don't like that one asshole who pays to come to a haunted house and then gets mad because someone tries to scare them. Well, I, I don't – I think you're, you're uh, not – Maybe I'm not explaining it correctly. No, I think you're explaining it correctly. I understand what you're saying. But both of you are the asshole to each other. Right, but I I feel like it's initiated, you know... By a person doing their job? But I'm going to do... I mean, do a better job then. Scare me the first time. Just because, you know, you don't do it the first time, you don't have to make it a point to like try to do it. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't add anything to me. Yeah, so try like, once and then give up. <laughs> see, I you're this isn't you're not going to ever ever like <laughs> see anything I have to say. Anyways, um <laughs> this is a great and then my third question for you is you have to be killed uh pretend you're in a horror movie, you have to be killed by one of these three people. Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger, or Jason Voorhees. Which one are you picking? Don't know the difference between the three of them. Michael Myers is going to stalk you and then show up behind you and slit your throat, probably. Okay. Freddy Krueger is going to invade your dreams. Okay. Or Jason is just literally going to stand like at the end of your driveway and uh, walk up with a machete, break down your door, find you, and murder you. Who's the one with the uh, hockey mask? Jason. Okay, I'll go with the first one. 
know, I, I mean, Michael Myers probably is the. I feel like, and I know we're like a month out from Halloween or whatever, but if you're going to say like one evil character like is the face of Halloween, it has to be him. Michael Myers? Like in terms of like horror movies and all that, it has to be Michael Myers. And I know you don't watch them because the scariest thing you watch is Twilight, but I mean, <laughs> they've done well with that character and making it iconic. Well, I'm proud with them. I'm proud of them. Proud of them. All right. Uh, anyways, moving on. So, uh, social media wise, uh, some decent things this week. Uh, you know, I feel like our audience, uh, I'm putting out a challenge to pick it up a little bit this week, but, uh, you, you beat me again in the Facebook, uh, poll for our top five animals. You beat me by like three votes, which it is what it is. My hippo, uh, add on apparently was less, was, Less liked than your beaver ad, which I don't understand. Well, no one wants to be a hippo. I mean, you're just a big, fat dummy. Um, Welcome to my life. Um, Paul said that the hippo is too unpredictable, and that's why he chose your pussy-ass list, which included a beaver. I don't feel Um, like a hippo is an unpredictable animal. It's generally just mean. It's always mean. It's not unpredictable. It's just mean. I mean, so why... Listen, I, I don't I don't have to I, I you want to hear that episode, everybody go back, you know, to last week and check it out. Um uh Grizzly Bear got a lot of love from several people. Um Taco Bell, we posted this on our, our uh, poll on our Twitter. Uh they're coming out with a meatless menu. Overwhelmingly, uh people said or voted that, you know, they were not excited. And you know what? I kind of agree with them. Spooky Alice, which is kind of a Fantastic handle, by the way. That's a good one. Uh, says so, so she doesn't know how you're supposed to eat a taco without like any kind of meat, anyways. Well, I think that. Well, I mean, you could use rice and beans. Beans can be a decent substitute. People make shrimp tacos. You could make an argument that that is not a meat. You got tofu tacos, and then they have that new kind of beyond meat stuff that they engineer. Uh, well, <laughs> what? What you just said, like if 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 people don't know what engineered meat is, I suggest that you not try it. It is disgusting. Have you had it? I have. Well, so I, I've when I say I've had the engineered, I've had the the. If, are you talking about the plant the plant based meat where the it's like a, a veggie burger, but it's all plants. Well, I think there's two different kinds that people get confused a lot, right? There's like the plant burger, which I. Maybe is vegan. I don't know how that worked. And then there's the meat that's essentially grown in a lab. Like it's real meat, but it's just – it's grown I think is how it is. I don't have any problem with any of that stuff. I really don't. You know, believe it or not, I don't eat a whole lot of fast food. So if if people – you know, I mean I'm all about getting healthier. I mean I literally walked a mile uh, this week. So we're we're getting there. I'm making strides, you know, towards personal fitness myself. How do you Not know? Not like Patrick Vellner, by the way, uh, our, our guest, uh, you know, the CrossFit guest from last episode. But I'm, you know, I'm getting there. I, I can almost do one half push up. Did you look at the pictures? For people who don't know, last week we had on one of the fittest men on earth, Patrick Vellner. He's a CrossFit athlete. Did you look at a picture of him? Because that man is a beast. Uh, I, I mean, I saw, I saw a couple on his Instagram. Um, yeah, I mean, he's, he, he is everything he said he was and continues to be. And he also does a lot of outreach as well, which I think is great because, 
you know, if I look like that, I would probably be the most pompous asshole you could ever imagine. I wouldn't really put my shirt on. Are you Are you ready for our top five? Are you done? I, I, I am ready. I I am a little hesitant, though, because people haven't liked my top five list lately. Are you getting and shy? Tr- what did you say? Are you getting a little shy? you getting a little skittish? No, I just, you know, I, I've been going with, like, what I thought were, like, the generic, except for the animal one last week. But the ones before that, I was trying to go with what I thought people... You know, like like the the consensus. So for for this top five, I completely went my personal preferences, and we'll see. Yeah, we'll see how it play plays out with the people. Okay, well, good. I mean, you just had a birthday. I think it's time for you to be okay with being who you are. <laughs> it's it's gonna take a while yet for me to, you know. I have friends like you who who always make me question everything about my life every day. Yeah, I mean, you should. Um, so for people who don't, for <laughs> moving on, we're going to do top five cereals. What's your number five? All right, so my number five, uh, we're going with a healthier uh, item to start, but uh, Special K, <laughs> uh, preferably Special K with like berries what? and strawberries. Oh, my God. <laughs> You're going to go with Special K? What are you, but, like a lonely housewife? Trying to keep her figure? <laughs> what the fuck is wrong with you, Special K? That's the worst. Almond milk. We'll call it. it. We'll call it a good bowl of cereal. God, you're probably like cutting up your. Not even buying fruit that's already cut, but like you cut your own fruit to put into the bowl. What an <laughs> asshole! <laughs> <laughs> I told you, man. I, you know, I, I'm going to heal, man. You know, our our our, our listeners want to turn their back on me. I, I'm gonna. I'm going to put it all out there this week in my top five series. I just – all I'm imagining is you as a 280-pound man buying Special K and I would be standing there being like, hmm, this ain't working, buddy. <laughs> not only not only do I do that, but I get the smaller box too because the bigger box is like $2 more. Do you buy the smaller box and a chocolate milk? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, no, I, I don't drink a whole lot of chocolate milk. Anyways, what's your number five? Lucky Charms. All right, that's, I mean, that, that's fair. That's conservative, I feel. And I think it's fair to say at this point right now, when we talk about a cereal, we're also talking about all related generic knockoffs versions of it, right? So the Marshmallow yeah. Mateys, like, that's the same thing as a Lucky Charms in, in our in our category, right? I have no idea what that whatever you just said but yes i will you agree with generic knockoffs okay you don't know about the cereals in the bag that you find like down towards the bottom it's the same I mean, exact I know thing of them, but I, I i literally couldn't tell you any any of their names because i've never i've never bought one all i know is marshmallow mateys is one um <laughs> i think there's like fruitios it, it's the same thing it's just they call it and it's just cheaper crap it's actually better probably what's your number four uh, so my number four, and I, I want to put this higher, but I just can't, uh, Fruity Pebbles. Ooh, overrated. The reason why it's number four and not higher is because if you don't eat it within a certain amount of time, it just turns to one soggy mess. But it's delicious. It's awesome. I mean, I you know, other than the, the little bit of soggy uh, problems, it would be higher on my list. See, that's the problem. The, the really small cereal, I'm not a big fan of that. Like, are you going to have... Do you have Fruit Loops above that? I no, I actually don't have Fruit Loops anywhere on my list. See, that's what I don't understand. Like Fruit Loops to me are the superior version of that kind of cereal. It's basically the same thing, only in a 
bigger, solider form. I would do that. <laughs> I uh, honestly, I couldn't even tell you the last time I had Fruit Loops, if if ever. Wow, that's a lie because you've had <laughs> Fruit Loops at some point in your life. Um, look, I'm kind of a cereal connoisseur, so I may get into some names that you don't know. Uh, Reese, Reese's Puffs. Oh, I have Reese's Puffs Ooh. on my on my uh, honorable mention. Oh, okay. I got excited for a second and then got disappointed, but thanks. The, be- <laughs> the best part about having Reese's Puffs is drinking the milk afterwards. Yeah, I agree with that. What's your number three? Uh, I have my number three is Frosted Mini Wheats. Okay, I thought about Frosted Mini Wheats. I like the chocolate ones, the version, the chocolate version that they have. That's an honorable mention at best for me. I like them because they're they're you know they're decent size. Uh, obviously, they're loaded with sugar. They don't get soggy, um, and they're filling. They're, they're just they're just delicious. Tasty, tasty cereal. Uh, my number three is Count Chocula. <laughs> okay. Um, Did you just laugh at Count Chocula? <laughs> I may have I may have scoffed a, a little bit there. Um, now, are you actually putting uh, putting him or putting him putting the cereal on because it's good cereal, or just because you love the character? Why do I feel that when you say pudding, you're in your mind spelling it P U D D I N G? When you say it, it sounds like pudding, like Jello and pudding, not pudding. I'm sorry. I, I will make sure to emphasize the pudding Thank and you. pudding. <laughs> All right. Can you say say both of them really quickly and see if I can pick out which one you're saying? Pudding, pudding. I think pudding. <laughs> I think the pudding was first, right? Pudding, pudding. Okay, but say it fast and let me see if I can pick out which one you're saying. Pudding, pudding. Oh yeah, pudding is pudding. It was first on that one. That one I picked up All really right. good. What, what, what? <laughs> I'm, I'm moving this conversation on. My number two, uh, Cinnamon Toast Crunch. Oh, mm. that to me is one. That to me is number one, but I appreciate you putting it up there. Cinnamon Toast, that's a classic good one, right? Once again, I, I, I feel like a lot of these, it's all, what, it's all in what the milk is like afterwards, and cinnamon milk is fucking delicious there it is okay so my number two is crave cereal okay yeah I, i've i've had crave that's the uh they have like different fillings in the middle right yeah i don't feel what like fillings you going with chocolate okay i you <laughs> you know i love something gooey and chocolatey in my mouth <laughs> hey <Hey-o>. um, <laughs> All right, well, my number one is uh, Frosted Flakes. Really? If wow. you notice, I, I kind of have a theme, but not really. Like, I have Frosted Mini Wheats, you know, I'm Frosted Flakes. Me. You know, I love I love uh, cereal that's loaded with sugar, and it probably shows. Well, I, my theme is basically chocolate, right? Reese's Puffs, Count Chocula, Crave. You can get chocolate cinnamon toast crunch if you want to. I'm just not a big fan of Frosted Flakes. I don't think they're that great. Yeah, I mean, I've it's the cereal I think I grew up on. I still eat it to this day. Uh, it's it's plus Tony the Tiger is a badass. Yeah, Tony the Tiger is probably the. We could do that one day. Top five cereal mascots. That's a good one. 
Um, That's a great one. Let me ask you this: when you're when you're eating cereal, you go you fill in the bowl all the way up. What are you doing? Oh yeah, okay. uh, all the way up. But I don't go for seconds because it's very easy to just keep eating cereal and cereal. I feel yeah. So you can get carried I'll away. I'll get a big bowl. Maybe pour me, you know, half a gallon of milk in there and just go to work. Nice. I don't want to go back for seconds, so instead, I'll get an oil change <laughs> drum and fill that fucking thing up and eat all of it. <laughs> um, you ever done a whole so, box at one time? No, God, no. Yeah, I, I never have either. I don't even think I've come close, to be honest. That'd be pretty tough. Uh, what's in your honorable mention? So I had Lucky Charms down. I had Reese's Puffs. Uh, and then I also had Cap Cap and Crunch with berries. Okay, all those are legit. So. Uh, I don't really have many, many, very many honorable mentions. I don't mind a flavored Cheerio. Sometimes they'll have like strawberry Cheerios or they'll have blueberry Cheerios. Those are pretty good. I don't mind a, like a frosted mini wheat. That's pretty good to me. I'll go honorable mention. Other than that, uh, like I don't really like that that many other ones. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm kind of the same way. I definitely, I definitely don't do Cheerios uh, for whatever reason. I just, you know, and I don't do any plain cereal either. Like, I don't do this, you know, you know, like it's 100 calories per serving. Like, I want all the sugar and all the milk, and I'll be happy. Except when you have Special K. Yeah, I guess. See, I'll tell you what I actually do at the Vinzan household. I buy three or four different kinds of cereal, mix them all into one thing, and eat them all at once. Like I keep them in a, like a Tupperware thing, and I just dump all of the cereal into that Tupperware, shake it up, and eat multiple kinds of cereal at one time. That's actually not a, a that's not a terrible idea. You've never done that? No, I don't. I I, I don't I don't. No, I've never done that. What has stopped you from it? Uh, laziness or you haven't thought of it? Uh, I mean, it's definitely not laziness because, like, I'll put some fruit in my cereal, too. Like, I'll chop a banana or blueberries or strawberries. But, like, I, I usually only buy, like, one kind of cereal at a time. Okay. All right. You buy multiple boxes, one box. Oh, definitely multiple boxes, baby. Costco, what's up? Yeah, that's the way to go. Okay, that's going to go ahead and do it for this episode of the Profoundly Pointless Podcast. I really can't wait to hear what you guys think are the top five cereals of all time. I think that Cinnamon Toast Crunch, that's going to be in a lot of top fives. And I think that's going to be at the top of a lot of top fives. But I'm interested to hear what you guys have to say. We love hearing from you guys. We're Profoundly Pointless on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We have a YouTube channel. We have ProfoundlyPointless.com. Love getting comments from you guys there. And if you get a chance, like, download, subscribe, share. We really appreciate it, and it really helps us out. Thank you. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.